verses 1 and 2. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear gracious God, as we turn to your word this morning, we would ask that you would stir up in us a desire to pursue you and to pursue your holiness. That those of us who know you, those of us who have been saved by the power of your grace, would seek your face and seek to grow in holiness, to grow in sanctification, to become more like you every day. And so, God, as we open your word, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. You may be seated. So we did just get through the book of Galatians, and one of the most clear messages of Galatians is what? Salvation and freedom. Right? Freedom from slavery to sin and death, that, that through Christ and through Christ's sacrifice, through his death and his resurrection, God has raised us into freedom, into life, and that we have the opportunity now to follow him. And uh, Paul continually sets up this dynamic, right, between the law and grace. And so it may be a little confusing that we've just gone through all of this, and now what have I done? I've gone back and gone back to the most quintessential element of the law, the Ten Commandments, to look at them. So as we do this, I want to start today, I want to start looking at a little bit of what the Ten Commandments are, a little bit of what the Ten Commandments are not, and then what exactly it is that the law does for us and where and how we begin to see Christ and the gospel even here in Exodus. Sometimes the Ten Commandments are referred to as the Decalogue. Have you ever heard that term before? Um, the Decalogue. It's a big fancy term. It's based in Greek, and it means deca, ten, and log, same word as logos that we see in the beginning of John, Decalogue, ten words. Now, obviously, there are more than ten words here, but this idea of that it's ten sayings, ten words from God. It's ten. You may not know them all. Some of you may have them memorized. Some of you may not. When I, was a, when I was a kid, I had this opportunity, I was in the marching band, and we had this thing called Hire an Eagle. So we were the, we were the Golden Eagles. And, um, and, and the Hire an Eagle program was someone could call and, uh, and, and hire a high school student to come and do some work for them, and then that money got put into our band account for band trips and, and that sort of thing. And so, um, and through that, I got to know this gentleman by the name of Mr. Thursby. Mr. Thursby sort of lived around the corner from me, which was very convenient, because I could ride my bike over there on a Saturday morning and help him 
with yard work. And eventually, Mr. Thursby and I developed this relationship, and I worked a great deal for him. But one Saturday morning, we're working, and we're trying to pull a stump up out of his front yard. I don't know if any of you have ever tried to pull a stump out by hand, but it is hard and messy uh, and dirty. And so we are up there, and we are yanking, and we're pulling, and we're yanking, and And all of a sudden, these two gentlemen show up and start helping us, and we get the stump up and out. And that's when I looked up and saw that these gentlemen had on white shirts and black ties and little black name tags. You may know already, they were two Mormon missionaries who, seeing us in trouble and needing help, had jumped right in to help us. Now, I will say this. Um, I would tell you that the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints teaches a false and incomplete and incorrect gospel, but I wish that our Bible-believing churches would take evangelism as seriously as the Mormons do. I wish they would take holy living as seriously as a lot of Mormons do, because these boys had never spoken to us, didn't know us, got their shirts very dirty, helping us pull that stump out. Well, of course, it started a conversation, and we were talking, and eventually Mr. Thursby said this. He said, all right, I will let you tell me about your religion if you can give me all ten commandments. Well, they couldn't. And so it was, well, have a nice day. We'll see you later, blah, blah, blah. They went away. Well, I looked at Mr. Thursby, and I said, all right, can you do all ten commandments? And he said, no. Because that's not the answer to the question. The answer to the question is not to name all ten commandments. The answer to the question is, well, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is likened unto it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Upon the law, all things, upon these two, all the law hangs. And then he's told me, he said, have you ever realized that? That the ten commandments can be broken into two. There are two tables in the ten commandments, two tablets. The first tablet is the first four commandments, and it's all about loving God and how you show your love for God. And the second tablet is likened unto it. It's the last six commandments, and it is the commandments to begin to show us how to love our neighbor as our self. Let me tell you, I was probably 14, 15. I wasn't driving yet, so I was under 16, and I remember that all these years. stuck with me. So as we look to the Ten Commandments, we can begin to think about it. That There are these two tables that Jesus sums up the Ten Commandments in that when he has come, when he has asked about the law. That in the Ten Commandments, we see that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. What else is the Ten Commandments? So besides these these ten statements broken up into these two tables, what else is it? Well, right there in verse uh, verse 1 of chapter 20, we see, right, we see, then God spoke all these words. Then God spoke all these words. This isn't from Moses. You know, sometimes we refer to the law, to the Torah as the law of Moses. It's not the law of Moses. It's the law of God. God is the one who speaks the Ten Commandments. God is the one who gives us to it. It comes from God. And if it comes from God, then that means that it is permanent. Because I am, I am, I am God. I'm the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
The law is permanent. It doesn't change. You know, it seems like we're living in a time in which the rules are changing all the time, right? We're living in a day and age in which we wake up on Tuesday and the rules on Tuesday may be different than what the rules were on Monday. But the law of God stays the same. Let me tell you, 4,000 years ago when when God spoke at Sinai to Moses and gave him the Ten Commandments and he said, do not kill, 4,000 years later we can bank on the fact that it's still wrong to kill. So the Ten Commandments are from God. They're the law of God. But what are the Ten Commandments not? I think it's, it's almost as important for us to think about what they aren't as to what they are. I, we have this idea sometimes, and, and, and I know where we get it, and, and it comes up. And this is what Paul's talking about when he talks about rejecting the law. We turn the law into checkboxes, Right? I'm gonna, if I check this off and check this off and check this off, then I am good. Some of you may be old enough to remember the uh, giving envelopes that had little check boxes on them. You all, some of y'all remember those? You checked it off if you had done your Bible reading. You checked it off if you brought your, uh, if you were, uh, had brought your Bible. You checked it off if you had done your Sunday school lesson. You checked it off if you brought your offering. And I think very unintentionally, what that did is it created in us a checkbox faith. It created in us this idea that if we just check the boxes, we're okay. And when we look at the Pharisees and when we look at what Paul says about the law, it's pretty clear that they kind of saw the law the same way. As long as I check all the boxes, I'm okay. Now the problem with that is, as Jesus shows us, we can't check all the boxes. But we still think that we can do that. We still think that if we check all the boxes, we're going to get a gold star. Any of y'all have gold stars when you were in elementary school? Next to your name. I never had any gold stars. I was always the kid who was getting my name written on the board and then a, and then a check next to it and then another check next to it and then another check next to it. I had a lot of checks and not a whole lot of gold stars. This might come as a surprise to some of you. I was a bit of a talker. I also was a bit of a smarty pants. I'm sure that surprises some of you too. But see, when we, when we think about the law, and when we turn our faith into a checkbox faith, that's the danger that Paul was telling us about in Galatians. Because Paul's telling us, right, like that when we do that, we, we think we've created a, a, a Jesus plus gospel. That I need Jesus plus to follow all the rules in order to be saved. That in order to be a good church member or a good Christian, I, I, need, a, I need Jesus, but I also need to check all of the boxes on the giving envelope every week. And what that turns into is it turns into this idea that we can save ourselves or that we can have some hand in our own salvation. And that's not true. We saw that. We just, we just spent 11 weeks in Galatians. If you weren't with us for that, I'd encourage you to go back on Facebook or on the podcast and, and get through that and listen to those to understand 
that the gospel of God is this, that, that God saves us through Christ. Not because we are deserving and not because we have done anything to deserve it, but by His grace and by His grace alone. Salvation through Christ alone, by grace alone. So if the law isn't about saving ourselves, if the law isn't about creating a bunch of check boxes that we have to check, then what's the purpose of the law? Because if the law comes from God, its purpose hasn't changed. Our understanding of the purpose has maybe changed in light of Christ. But, but God's purpose hasn't changed. It's the same. So what was the purpose for the law? Well, we begin to see this when we turn to verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. See, the people have already been redeemed. God's people have already been saved from slavery. God didn't come to them when they were in Egypt and said, if you do all of these things, I will pull you out of Egypt. No, God goes to them in Egypt and he says, because you are my people, I will rescue you. I will redeem you. I will liberate you from slavery. If we look back at Exodus 19, if we look back at Exodus 19 at verses 4 and 5, we see this. It says, Have you seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself? This is God speaking to the people. Then he goes into, chapter, and then he goes into verse 5. Now, if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all of the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. See, the covenant doesn't come so that God can save. God saves so that the covenant can come. He rescues them. He bears them out of Egypt on eagle's wings first. And then He gives them the law. So if the law isn't there for our salvation, what is it for? Well, Paul's talked about this. In Galatians and in other places, he talks about this. The law is there to show us our need for God and for a Savior. One of the verses I use all the time in funerals, I use as part of the committal service, is from 1 Corinthians 15. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul's talking about that we have a corruptible body that is clothed with mortality, and that we need to be clothed in incorruptibility and clothed in immortality. And when that happens, then we can say, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? But then what does Paul say next? Because the power of sin is the law. The law is there to show us our sin. The law is there to show us all of the ways and all of the reasons that we need God. 
The law is there to provide us with the standard and the rule that we can measure ourselves against and find us wanting. When Adam and Eve are in the garden and the serpent comes to them, what does he say? He says, eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and you will become like God. Because the knowledge of good and evil and what is good and what is evil comes from and is defined and declared by God. And if we don't have that standard, if we don't have that rule, then we don't understand that we are in need of a Savior. Now, there are certain things that God wrote into creation. A while ago, I used the example from the Ten Commandments of Thou Shalt Not Kill. That's a pretty universal rule. You can go pretty much anywhere in the world, and most cultures have some rule against killing each other. Because God wrote it into creation. We know there's a, there's a common grace that lets us know that there are certain things that just aren't right. That's what Paul's saying in Romans 1. He's saying that, that people know what's right and wrong. They've just refused to acknowledge it. And so God comes and he lays out the law very succinctly so that we can see that we need a Savior. To show us what his holiness looks like. And to show us how far we fall short of his holiness. That's what chapter 19 in Exodus is all about. Chapter 19 is is God coming to them at Sinai. And there's this whole thing where he's he's setting up boundary markers. You all remember this? He sets up boundary markers so that they can't get up the mountain. Well, it's because they can't get up the mountain because the holy God has descended on the mountain and holiness cannot tolerate unholiness. And out of his love for them and out of his concern for them, he sets a boundary. And he says, you cannot come closer to me than this because you are unholy and I am holy. And my holiness will burn you up in your unholiness. Chapter 19 is all about God's holiness. About showing what that looks like. And then we come to the beginning of the giving of the law. God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the Egypt, out of the place of slavery. You know, we didn't talk much this year about the Exodus. Sometimes we talk about the Exodus around Easter. We didn't talk about it much this year. But how are the people rescued out of Egypt? They're rescued out of Egypt by God's power, right? But there's also this this moment in which the doorposts of their houses are marked with the blood of the Lamb so that God and the spirit of death would know who His people were and pass over them. They were saved from the wrath of God by the blood of the Lamb. And then were brought up out of Egypt 
And God says, now that I have rescued you by the blood of the Lamb, follow my commands and chase after my holiness. When you were in Egypt, you could not chase after me. When you were in Egypt, you could not chase after my holiness. When you were in Egypt, you could not serve me. But I have rescued you from slavery by the blood of the Lamb so that you can become holy. Does that sound familiar? This is what we might talk in Scripture as being a gospel pattern. God works the same way over and over and over again in the history of salvation. The exodus was a prefiguring of the final exodus in Jesus. How are we saved in Christ? We are saved by the power of God through the blood of the Lamb. Why? So that we can have relationship with God and pursue Him and pursue His holiness. Our salvation should always, and in fact, Scripture tells us, will always bring us toward holiness. The big word that we talk about, use when, when we talk about this is sanctification. We're going to be sanctified. We're going to be made holy. That's what that word means. See, when when we do that, we begin to see that the rules and the law aren't boxes that we can check, but are tools by which we can draw closer to God. Because when we have been saved, when we have been born again, our affections should change. See, the things that, that we love and the things that we desire should change when we're born again. You know, there are a lot of people out there, they have, they have head knowledge about God, and they, and they, but their affections don't change. They just think they can start using God to, to get the things that they've always wanted. I've always wanted to be rich, so now I'm going to pray to God for it. I've always wanted to be healthy, so now I'm going to pray to God for it. I've, I've always wanted a fancy car, so now I'm going to pray to God for it. Man, i got to tell you, I had an experience this week. The buddy that I went to Louisville with, about two weeks ago, his car got sideswiped. And so we couldn't take his car, so we had to rent a car. And it was supposed to be a Toyota Corolla. Reasonable, practical, fuel-efficient. He showed up last Monday morning at the car rental place down in Wilmington, and they said, McCluskey, I'm really sorry. We don't have a car in your class. We're going to have to upgrade you at no cost to you. We're going to have to upgrade you. And he said, okay, well, what am I getting? Um, It looks like, sir, the only thing we have available on the lot is a Dodge Challenger. Let me tell you, two pastors and a Dodge Challenger on a road trip would make a great premise for a sitcom. And I will be honest with you. I have never, you see what I drive. I drive a 2007 Toyota Corolla with 300,000 miles on it. I do not feel cool when I get out of my car. But when we stopped in Asheville, on the way up there to get lunch, I felt cool stepping out of that Dodge Challenger. 
for the affections of our heart to change. That was a cool car, man. I appreciated that experience. But it doesn't need to become the thing that I start chasing after. The affections of my heart should change. Now here's one. The first time I heard this, it, it made me step back. So it may make you step back. It is not a new affection of our heart to desire to be saved from hell. Anybody would want to be saved from hell. So a prayer to God to save me from hell, that is not a new affection in your heart. Because here it is, as great as it is to step out of hell, it pales in comparison to step into heaven and into the presence of God. If you are a Christian because you don't want to go to hell, your affections have not changed. You should be a Christian because you want to be with God. To be able to pursue Him, to pursue His design, and to pursue His holiness. I think there's a possibility over the last several years that in a desire to reclaim the gospel, to reclaim the gospel of grace, that we have accidentally done a disservice. And we've accidentally created a cheap grace that tells people that it's, that it's free, which is true, but that it doesn't come after with this desire to chase after God. This desire to grow in holiness. To grow into the people that He has made us to be. We talked about this a few weeks ago. That if someone saves you, your desire then is to help them. To serve them back, right? God has saved us. Just as He saved the Israelites out of Egypt. He has saved us. Or can save us. And it seems only fit and proper that we then seek Him. And seek His way. There is a connection <clears throat> between the sin-canceling power of the blood of Christ and the sin-killing desire of the believer. John Owen was an English reformer and he has this great quote. It is, be killing sin or it will be killing you. We need the gospel. We need God's grace. We need salvation. But we also need to seek to kill the sin in our lives. Because those who are enslaved to sin cannot follow God. Cannot chase after Him. 
4,000 years ago, God rescued His people. Not because of anything they had done, but because of who they were. They were His people. And He rescued them and He brought them out of Egypt. And once they were safe, and once they were on the other side of the Red Sea, and once they were ready, He said, because I am the Lord your God and I have saved you from Egypt, here is how we can have relationship. Here is how you can grow in holiness. 2,000 years ago, or actually 1,989 years ago, God saved His people again. Not because of what we have done, but because of, of who we are and who He is. Because He is God and we are His people and He has saved us so that we can have relationship with Him and so that we can chase after Him and so that we can pursue Him. So over the next several weeks together as we look at the Ten Commandments, I want us to remember these are not rules for us to follow so that we can be saved. They are rules for us to follow, tools for us to follow and use so that we can get closer to Because that is what the law is for. The law is not to save us. It is to be a tool for us to see who we are and the holiness of God and pursue that holiness as his people. That is what the law is for. And we are able to do that because of Jesus because of his work, and because he lives. Our hymn of invitation this morning is going to be hymn number 407, Because He Lives. This is what happens when your pastor is left to choose the music. He chooses the things that he likes. So we're going to sing 407, Because He Lives.